Hey everyone, Steve Sofronis here, host of the Highest Aspirations podcast. Before we get started with this week's episode about interpreting services with Michelle Gallagher, we wanted to invite you to take a one-minute survey to let us know how we're doing with resources like this podcast, our What We're Reading newsletter, and the other resources we offer you in the ELL community. You can find the survey at bit.ly slash survey 19 That's bit, B-I-T, dot L-Y slash E-L-L survey 19. You can also find the survey on the blog version of this episode at elevationeducation.com slash E-L-L community. We're always looking to improve and we really value your feedback. I hope you take a minute to take that survey. Thanks so much and I hope you enjoy our conversation with Michelle Gallagher. What happens in IEP meetings, what I saw quite often, is that you have, again, the half dozen um, school staff, administrators, teachers, um, counselors on one side of the table. Because of that time crunch, right, which is a very real thing in schools, I'll be interpreting between the parent, parents even, and one of the school staff. The school staff start talking amongst themselves. If that mother, right, if she or father, if they spoke English, if they could understand fully what was going on, if they were a native English speaker, let's say, would those school staff be speaking amongst themselves, right? So the trained interpreter says at the beginning of the encounter, everything that is said will be interpreted. Welcome to Highest Aspirations, an education podcast that explores the world of English language learners and how we can make a greater impact. Each episode, we bring you voices from across the ELL community to discuss the issues that matter most. Highest Aspirations is brought to you by Elevation Education, your partner for ELL program management and instruction. Hey everybody, welcome back to Highest Aspirations. I'm your host, Steve Sophronis. How is interpretation different from translation? When is interpreting necessary, and how is it mandated in schools and other community institutions? What are some of the challenges and pitfalls of homegrown interpreting services? We discuss these topics and much more in our conversation with Michelle Gallagher. Michelle is the Managing Director of Cross-Cultural Communications the leading national training organization for educational, social services, and medical interpreters, with more than 300 licensed trainers in 37 U.S. states, Washington, D.C., Guam, and six other countries. Michelle has more than 15 years of experience in facilitation and management of professional training programs for international audiences. She has taught at the Universidad Europea de Madrid and managed training organizations in Madrid and Maryland. She is also a freelance Spanish interpreter. Michelle received her BA in International Relations from Tulane University and her MBA in Marketing and General Management from the University of Maryland's Smith School of Business. She spent nine years living in Madrid, where she received her MA in Conference Interpreting at the Universidad de Cluny. Michelle has volunteered for Youth for Understanding, an international student exchange program, since 2003, and has served as the webmaster for the National Capital Area Translators Association, a local chapter of the American Translators Association. We hope you enjoy this conversation about this really important topic. Let's get started. Hello, Michelle. Welcome to Highest Aspirations. Thanks for having me, Steve. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Uh, we've been in contact for quite a while. Um, you're actually recommended by another guest on this podcast um, this season, so I'm excited about that. 
Um, and this is a subject that uh, we have not really talked about formally. Um, so I'm glad to have kind of some sort of laser focus on this important topic. Yeah, again, thank you for having me, Steve. And these things, the best connections are always by word of mouth, right? So I'm, I'm very grateful to our mutual connection for introducing us. Absolutely. So let's start by establishing a foundation for the rest of our conversation. Um, I think it's important, even though most of the folks that are listening to this podcast are sort of language experts, they're working with English language learners, but there is um, kind of a bit of a confusion, uh, at least for me at the beginning, between interpreting and translation. So what would you say the difference is to kind of uh, layer a foundation here? Sure. And this is a great place to start, Steve, um, especially as what we do here at Cross-Cultural Communications is a part of the larger language industry. Um, so let's clear up some terms and definitions. Um, interpreting is converting the meaning of a message from one spoken or sign language to another spoken or sign language. Translation means rendering a text from one language to another in writing. Interpreting and translation are two separate professions with different skill sets, credentials, specializations. Um, that said, there are many professionals who work in both areas. Uh, for example, our nation's largest membership association for language professionals, called the American Translators Association, or ATA, includes interpreters and translators despite its name. Um, outside the industry, you'll see that there's a lot of confusion between these two professions. All too frequently, both are referred to as quote-unquote translators. Um, a mistake often found in media articles, on TV. Um, I consider, consider it a personal achievement that um, my family and friends now use the correct terminology and are helping to spread the word. Yeah, that's great. And that's, I'm hoping to be able to do that here as well. And like, you know, we, we had talked before, I was a foreign language teacher for many years. Um, and I, I confess, like, I didn't really understand what the difference was. And I think we'll get into this a little later, but I was sort of pulled into situations where mm -hmm. I either had to interpret or translate whatever definition I was kind of using um, without necessarily the skill set to be able to do that. But we'll, mm -hmm. we'll get into that a little bit later. For now, I want to talk about um, when is, now that we have the definitions down, when <laughs> is interpreting necessary? Could you give us some examples of kind of typical settings in which interpreting takes place? Sure, yeah, and these are great questions. Um, interpreting is needed whenever someone is unable to communicate due to language barriers. That's the fundamental need of you know, when interpreting is necessary, when an interpreter needs to be there. Um, in community services and education, we need interpreters whenever a client or family member does not speak the language of service. An interpreter serves as the conduit of communication so that the parties can address each other as if they shared a common language. While many specializations of interpreting exist, most of the examples I'll be using today come from community interpreting. So community interpreting is an umbrella term that covers educational, social services, and medical interpreting settings. When I lived in Madrid a number of years ago, I interpreted for my friends at medical appointments, the bank, um, even the Treasury Department when filing our annual taxes. Here in the U.S., Interpreting takes place in all of these settings and many more, such as the courts, hospitals, workers' compensation appointments, immigration services, law enforcement, and of course, schools. Think of all the people you interact with on a daily basis, face-to-face, -face, over the phone, in texts, or by email. For an individual in this country with limited English proficiency, many of these interactions are difficult, if not impossible. Sure. And, you know, I really like um, what you said about uh, they can, so that folks can communicate as if they shared mm -hmm. a common language. I think that's, mm -hmm. that's a crucial um, part of that definition. 
And I'm also glad you got into that community interpreting. Um, mm -hmm. And I think people can kind of hear um, where this applies to many um, of our audience members. Um, you mentioned in schools and courts, immigration services. Um, so, you know, one thing that I think um, confuses people, even at a district or leadership level, mm. is schools, particularly legal obligations to provide interpreting services and the rights people have to access those services. Mm. Um, could you talk a little bit more about that? I think the people listening here would be very interested in hearing your take on, um, on the legal obligations associated with interpreting. Sure, yeah. And, and this also propels the need, in a sense, for making sure we have trained professional interpreters, right, providing these services. So right. there is legislation behind it. There are consequences for not having trained interpreters and translators, right, providing these, these services for families and schools. Um, so in the United States, there are dozens of federal, state, and local language access laws. I'll focus on three critical pieces of national legislation that support language access for spoken and sign languages. Um, so number one, Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 prohibits discrimination on the basis of national origin, among other criteria. For decades, this law has been interpreted to mean that someone who may be eligible for a federally funded service may not be discriminated against on the basis of language. Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act of 1973 and Title II of the Americans with Disabilities Act of 1990 prohibit discrimination on the basis of disability. These laws have been used to require provision of sign language interpreting services for the deaf and hard of hearing. So an LEP, right, limited English proficient, deaf or hard of hearing individual has the same right as anyone else to access services that receive federal funding. These services include healthcare, the legal system, social services, and education. In the case of schools that receive federal funding, these institutions are required to provide interpreting and translation services for the languages used by a significant number of their students and their families. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. As a teacher, the, you're sort of speaking a language that I heard quite frequently associated <laughs> with, with, um, with special education, um, yeah. students having IEPs and 504s. And I feel like, and this is very anecdotal of me and kind of observational, um, but perhaps, and maybe you have some some insight in this, interpretation or interpreting services, I, I guess, don't seem to really have, although there's 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 mandates and there's laws behind it, 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 it doesn't seem to or didn't historically seem to have kind of the same pull um, or the same, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, mm. um, draw um, or importance maybe as some of those special education services, not that we're trying to compare one to another, but is yeah, that something that yeah. you've observed? And if so, has that sort of begun to change? So educational interpreting overall, what we're seeing is it is one of the, the areas of community interpreting, right? So again, community interpreting, educational, social services, and medical. Educational interpreting, in our view, is finally starting to take off in importance and recognition, right? It's always been needed, uh -huh. right? A parent comes into a parent-teacher conference, back to school night, they need access to those services. Because of the legislation, you know, that I've mentioned before, those language access, language access laws, mm -hmm. IEP meetings, special education meetings would typically get a higher priority is what we've seen, right? I've interpreted at IEP meetings, for example, I'm sitting on one side of the table, I'm sitting next to the parent, the student may be there, both parents may be there. And on the other side of the table, you have half a dozen school administrators, teachers, you know, everyone. So those meetings, because they are legal as well, they have legal ramifications for the child's education, um, for his or her future, they would typically get more 
attention, let's say, and you would typically have the interpreter there. It could be a bilingual staff member who works for the school, a bilingual liaison, um, whose job title may or may not be interpreter. Um, it may include a range of other things, but they would also make sure that if they couldn't find someone in school, and this is my impression from being an educational interpreter for several years, is that if they couldn't find someone, they would pull in a contract interpreter because they had to provide that service because it was special education. But what we're seeing now, um, and we work with uh, you know, several school districts across the country, locally um, and other places, is that now there's this growing need and desire to train interpreters, educational interpreters, to work in other areas of the schools, right? So again, back to school meetings, parent-teacher conferences, things that may or may not have quote-unquote legal ramifications if an interpreter is not present, but it's about providing access, right? Mm -hmm. So that down the road, you avoid situations where a parent goes to the school and says, why is my child not on time for graduation? Oh, because I didn't know, because that information wasn't interpreted or translated for me. Right. So you mentioned that in, at, some, at some times the schools will bring in, um, you know, contracted interpreters to come in. But what, how, do you, how have you observed schools kind of typically going about providing um, interpreting services in kind of the right um, way? Sure. Yeah. And we've seen it's fascinating to me because even here in Maryland, where we're based, each county is almost like a different country, right? They have their own yeah, ways. Yeah, that sounds familiar. Yeah. <laughs> Good. I'm glad this is not just us then. We're not nope. just the one, the one offshoot, the one uh, different example here. Not um, at all. This is, this is what we've seen, right? So each county is different. Each state is different. Um, so we've seen a variety of models. Um, so school districts will provide interpreting services in one of several ways. Um, for example, a county here in Maryland uh, with whom we work on a regular basis has 20 to 30 bilingual staff, family liaisons that provide family engagement services um, in more than one language but they also serve as interpreters when students and families interact with school staff. So they provide services, for example, in English, um, in Hindi, in Spanish, in Mandarin, but they also serve as interpreters when it's not them directly providing the service. They're serving there as the interpreter for the family member and then for a fellow you know, school administrator or, or faculty member. Um, larger school systems that we've worked with across the country may provide interpreting services via full-time staff interpreters. So this person, and what we've seen in California, for example, is the title we've seen in a lot of school districts that we work with is district translator. This, this title, though, it covers a lot of times the fact the person is translating and interpreting. So that would be an example of a full-time staff interpreter. Um, other school districts will, again, work with the bilingual liaisons, and then others will also work with contract interpreters. So it's not necessarily one model or another. A lot of times we see overlap, and they're using more than one method. Um, and the interpreting services themselves can be provided in person, over the phone, and or by video. Um, so with the staff interpreters and the bilingual liaisons, schools may choose to develop and provide in-house training or outsource it to an interpreter training organization. Um, there's a Department of Education fact sheet um, called the Information for Limited English Proficient, Parents and Guardians, and for Schools and School Districts that Communicate with Them. This fact sheet has a ton of useful information, um, and it also states that school districts should ensure that interpreters and translators have knowledge in both languages of any specialized terms or concepts to be used in the communication at issue and are trained on the role of an interpreter and translator, the ethics of interpreting and translating, and the need to maintain confidentiality. So 
you can't just throw anyone into this role, right? And you know, you know where I come from on this, Steve, right? We are an interpreter training sure. organization. We're very passionate about the need, the critical fundamental need for these individuals to be trained. But it's not just us saying it, right? It's the federal government saying yep. you can't just throw anyone in to be a quote unquote translator. They've got to have the training. Right. And I think you, you and I actually talked about, um, and it's, now it's probably a good time to bring this up, is that mm-hmm. I, you know, I, as a Spanish teacher in a school district in Massachusetts with a very high um, Hispanic population, on more than one occasion, but I, I can recall one very specific situation when I was a very young teacher, I didn't have much training even to be in the classroom, much less um, interpreting skills and, and sort of the ethics training and everything else that you were just talking about, specialized vocabulary. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I was pulled at one point into a, a pretty traumatic, um, serious situation uh, with a student where I was asked to interpret. I was actually asked to translate, not to interpret. Let's mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, I, and I was taken to the, to, the, to the family's home and really had to deal with a very difficult situation, and I know that I'm not the only one at all who's had to who's had to do that. Mm-hmm. But I'm curious what what your reaction is to that um, in those kinds of like uh, ad hoc, uh, traumatic, difficult situations mm-hmm. when somebody's pulled in. Yeah, and I'm I'm sorry to say, but I'm not surprised at all. Right, we hear these we hear these kind of anecdotes all the time when people come to our training programs, and they've been thrown into difficult situations, no support, no training, and no debrief as well, right? I mean, what you're right. talking about is something that we address with some of our programs um, that focus on trauma-informed interpreter training. So traumatic situations, maybe you're interpreting for families who just come to this country as refugees or asylees. Maybe there's you know, domestic violence going on in the home um, or child abuse, right? So you walk in with no training whatsoever. You don't know how to deal with, with, with the interpreting encounter itself, which is already highly complex. And then all these other elements are thrown in. Sure. And if you have any kind of, let's say, you know, hints of someone, you know, any kind of abuse, then you're talking also about legal interpreting, moving beyond the community interpreting sphere, where you're talking about legal ramifications, um, you know, if something is misinterpreted or something is done incorrectly, that shows up later on, you know, in, in legal situations. So what we focus on and, and what you see as well in the field of, of interpreter training is you're now beginning to see more of these continuing education workshops beyond just the foundation training. So we, for example, we offer a trauma-informed interpreting workshop that prepares more experienced interpreters how to deal with these situations. Mm-hmm. But we also ask the fundamental, fundamental question, right? Do you want, as an interpreter, to work in the sphere, right? Myself, I've, I've tried medical interpreting. Um, it really wasn't my passion. And because I have a training and teaching background, I started doing educational interpreting. That is what I love doing. I absolutely adored it. Um, I felt like I was making a difference. But for someone who, let's say, hasn't done trauma-informed interpreting, you attend a workshop, maybe you try it out. If it's not for you, that's also perfectly fine, right? You know, you, we know through training where to set our boundaries, what works for us, what doesn't, where we can best serve. Yeah, and this gets into another question that I have, and, mm-hmm. and I, I know it's something that you're, um, you are very passionate about, which is that you know, you're, you're talking about interpreting as an industry, um, mm. a, a profession, a way to make a living, um, which, you know, I think is really important because many times people look at this as, well, I'm a teacher, but I can also interpret. I'm a family engagement liaison, but I can also um, interpret. I'm curious um, where you see this sort of industry um, going, what the sort of history of it is in terms of, you know, what, what you've seen over the years and, and, and how you think it might change or how you think it should change. Hmm. All very interesting questions. Yes. So 
in in the states, right? So community interpreting overall actually first became sort of recognized, professionalized in Australia in the 1970s. Um, Australia, Canada um, have had a longer history of it being recognized as a profession than here in the states. In the states, the most professional sector of interpreting overall has typically been in the courts. So state or federal court certified interpreters, longer professional history, in a sense more developed um, codes of ethics as well, again, because you're in a legal situation versus a community setting. Mm-hmm. Um, in the states here, so community interpreting is finally, right, we're excited because it's finally getting the recognition that it deserves. You have the language access laws backing up the fact that this is, this is an area where you must have trained, qualified um, individuals. Right. One of the fundamental issues, right, where with interpreting overall is that many people mistakenly equate being able to speak two languages or being able to sign two languages with the ability to interpret. And yep, it's I was, not that, was, that happened to me <laughs> very frequently. Yeah. And, and yeah. It, was, it was a difficult situation to be in. And mm-hmm. I don't mean to interrupt, but it was also difficult for me to kind of explain I'm not comfortable in this situation and I'm not mm-hmm. trained for this situation, but people would look at me like, well, you're bilingual, you speak Spanish and English, so <laughs> you help, you know, could you help us? And it's hard for a young person, a young teacher, mm-hmm. even, you know, even someone who's experienced to say, no, I'm, I'm not comfortable doing this both, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of my own ability and in terms of the legal ramifications that, that come with it. So I'm sorry to chime in there, mm-hmm. but I, like you're bringing up some, some points that are, are very sort of personal mm-hmm. to me and I know uh, to others as well. <laughs> Yeah, but that's excellent, right? We hear this all the time, Steve, where someone is put into a position, they want to help, right? They want to, okay, I'm bilingual, let me help this family, otherwise maybe won't get service, right? Maybe they won't be able to to fully engage with the educators, with their child's education. So you jump in, you say, sure, you know, I'd I'd be an awful person if I said no. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Right? (laughs) And yet, a lot of times, that is actually the best solution to say no, because then the school, hopefully, right, or whoever the service provider is, is forced to find a trained, qualified interpreter, right, a professional, um, instead of, for example, you know, oh, well, I know a little bit about medicine, so let me help you <laughs> with, this, with this prescription. Let me tell you what I think you should do for your cold. <laughs> yeah, right? that's um, a great way to put it. That's a right? great comparison to make. People, right? And just because I know what aspirin is doesn't make me a doctor. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and that's, you know, it's an imperfect comparison, you know, but but it, it, it is similar in this sense, right? Just because I speak Spanish doesn't make me an interpreter. doesn't make me a translator either just because I know how to read Spanish, right? It's not the same thing. Um, but with this, what you said as well, Steve, we hear a lot, right? Where you were put into a situation and you didn't know how to say no. And this is something that we teach in our programs too, right? We teach a gracious method, right? For saying, for declining graciously and giving reasons why this would not be the best solution to this, to this situation, right? Um, so with interpreting, with interpreter training, that's, that's part of it. We, we tell people, we show them it's a profession. Here are the guidelines, here are your ethics, right? And because of your ethics, in a certain situation where you didn't feel comfortable or you didn't have enough training, then you would actually need to decline because you wouldn't be qualified to accept that, that position or that assignment. Um, but we also do, we have to look at the other side of the coin too, right? You were put into that situation, presumably by someone who didn't know what interpreting was um, right. and that it was, a, or it is a profession. So we do, it's also the service provider training, right? Training for the teachers, for the school administrators, for doctors, nurses, anyone who works in that triad, right? With, uh, with their patient or their client who doesn't speak, they don't speak the same language, right? You have the interpreter there as a third person. 
training for the interpreter is critical. Training for the service provider is also critical, right? So how to work with a trained interpreter, in some cases, how to work with an untrained interpreter. So what should that interpreter be doing? If I need an interpreter in Swahili, for example, and the only person we have is untrained, unqualified, but I desperately need to communicate with that patient, how do I, in a pinch, work with that untrained interpreter? What, how can I guide them so that, they need to, so that they can do what they need to do in order right. for us to give service to that person, right? Yeah, and I feel like a lot of this is um, sort of raising awareness, both um, mm. among people like me who have been sort of put in that situation and among the people who are sort of asking people like me to do that, who are not doing it um, for any other reason except that they want to help. But I, I really like it that you mentioned um, and, and I want to talk a little bit more about the program, but I really like it that you mentioned that you sort of t- train people how to graciously say no, and that, <laughs> and that the result of that um, may be that the school or whatever organization is says, you know what, like, we're not doing what we need to do. We need to get the right people in here to do this or train the right people. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. One, thing, one thing that we've kind of been alluding to a little bit and that I think I dealt with in situations that I was in was this like these gray areas and difficult situations. Mm. Um, and you, you, you've talked about the importance of, of community interpreters needing to kind of step back and have guidelines to deal with those mm. situations. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. So this is part of training, right? I mean, this is part of, in a sense, what the military does, right? You train people to put themselves deliberately into difficult situations and to not flinch. <laughs> so what we do with community interpreter training is we put them into difficult situations in training. We tell them first off that community interpreting is messy, um, it's unpredictable. Um, you know, I'm, I ha- I'm happy to share an example um, from my personal experience when I was serving as a, as a volunteer medical interpreter, but in that situation, right, you don't know what's gonna happen from day to day. Um, right. I have, my background is you know, training, teaching, I also have a master's in conference interpreting. Conference interpreting is so different from community interpreting. You're in your booth, you're oftentimes just there with your partner, your fellow interpreter, it's a safe, environment. Unpredictable things don't happen, which is the polar opposite of community interpreting. Mm -hmm. Things happen all over the place. So every day is a gray area, (laughs) basically. (laughs) You don't know what's going to happen. So you have to be trained how to deal with that and how to make decisions. But I think, you know, what you're talking about, this sort of professionalization of the field um, is that yeah, there there have to be some guidelines. And some of those Mm -hmm. guidelines are going to be probably counterintuitive to what you think um, sort of you should be doing as a human, right? As just like somebody who is trying to comfort um, another person and, and maybe help them feel less lonely by using language, which is a very human thing to do. But it sounds like some of the guidelines, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, and again, like you're putting people in uncomfortable situations so that they react the right way when, this, when the time comes to deal with it. But some of the situations are probably sort of against what your instinct tells you. You've hit the nail on the head, Steve. That is exactly it. And this is why when we, when we ask our participants at the beginning of a course why they are here, why are you here at this training? Why do you want to become a community interpreter? Inevitably, people will say, I want to help. I want to help my people, my community. I want to help people in general. Um, it was why I was volunteering, right? And why when I, was, um, when I was doing educational interpreting, I loved it. I loved it for that reason because you could see parents finally I mean, it was just amazing, right? Parents sometimes would turn to me with tears in their eyes and for the first time, sure. they felt yeah. that they could actually communicate with the school staff and the teachers. They, they had a voice, finally, and they could fully engage with their students or with their child's education and know that their child was being taken care of. I mean, that is incredibly moving and you really do feel like you're helping and yet 
you again, you hit the nail on the head. A lot of what a professional uh, interpreter has to do and can only learn through training is counterintuitive, right? We have to pull back from being warm and fuzzy. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think this gets to something that we've talked about on this podcast before. Again, we really haven't talked about this topic specifically, but we it's obviously come up where it's a podcast about English language learners. Hmm. And one of the things that we've talked about um, is this kind of homegrown programs for community liaisons and interpreters. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also this trend of like creating pipelines for bilingual students. And I think like all these programs are really well-intentioned. But as you start to talk about, as we just discussed this like counterintuitive way that you should handle situations, I have to think it, it, it would be difficult in some cases for these kind of homegrown situations to understand how to do that. So I'm curious what your take is um, on those kinds of programs that, again, are, are really well-intentioned and in some cases, I think, serve the community pretty well in the short term, at least. But are there sort of dangers there? What's the, what's the best way to go about developing these, or is there one? Sure, yeah. And I think, it's, I think it's great, actually, to ask questions about the pipeline programs because they do there, – there are some wonderful advantages to them, but there are some, let's say, inherent – dangers to them um, if they're not, if the goals aren't set clearly from the beginning. Um, So I think some of the pipeline programs that are in development that are being done right now can provide amazing career opportunities for the students, right? And students in particular with a high level of language proficiency, you know, languages are a gift, right? You Mm -hmm. you think, why not leverage that for a career? It could be a part-time, full-time career down the road as an interpreter. Um, and yet at the same time, we have to remind ourselves that these students in large part are still minors, right? right. So they're under 18. Um, the goal of these pipeline programs in many cases is to introduce them to the profession. So introduce them, show them what it is, show them that their language abilities, right, can lead to a job, but it's not to turn them into interpreters for their parents uh, or for their school's parent-teacher conferences or for special education meetings. Right. Um, and in addition, professional interpreters overall, um, at a bare minimum, need to be 18 years or older and to have graduated from high school. So those things have to be met before they can actually start working as a professional interpreter. Um, and on the legal side, the Department of Education specifically prohibits students from interpreting. So we have to keep that in mind. And the reason, or one of the many reasons, um, is that a professional interpreter is bound by a code of ethics. They've had training. Uh, Um, So they know the profession, they know what to do, what not to do. They know the fundamental importance of maintaining confidentiality and of being impartial. Um, The pipeline programs at heart should really have the goal of introducing the student to a potential career path, providing them with marketable professional skills for the future. It shouldn't be a way for schools to supplement or supplant services provided by trained professional interpreters. Yeah, I think that's a great, that that last uh, description is a great way to put it. Um, you know, I mean, it, 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 language is a gift. These students, many of them are marginalized in other ways. Yeah. Um, so to be able to, um, to sort of cert, not certify, but to be able to, um, to let them know that they do have this marketable, the word yeah. you use skill, I think is, is crucially important. And we, you know, we've talked a little bit about the seal of biliteracy, which is a whole other topic for a whole other podcast, but there are ways that we can sort of validate students, um, skills, um, at, at being, um, being able to speak more than one language, but I, I think it's important that you, what you mentioned, which is we can't sort of um, rely on students for a mm-hmm. wide variety of reasons um, mm-hmm. to take over services that need to be um, done by, um, by professionals. 
So yeah. I want to come back. You mentioned the, the, the course, the 40 hour training program that's offered by your organization. Um, mm -hmm. As someone who you mentioned, you lived in Madrid, you were there for nine years, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, you were, and you were obviously, uh, I assume, highly proficient in Spanish. <laughs> um, I hope so, in order to survive right into the daily things. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> I mean, this is the part why I stayed so long. Though. I was like, I'm not going to leave until I speak Spanish. <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, I, I could have, I was there, for, I lived in Spain for about eight months, um, and it wasn't, oh, wow. was, was not long enough. I wish I stayed longer, but, uh, yeah. but, uh, but I'm curious, you know, given that experience, um, what, what was the value of taking that course um, and sort of, you know, what, what did that do for you um, in terms of sort of professionalizing, for lack of a better term, this skill that you, you already had? Sure. Overall, it gave me the guidelines. It showed me, first of all, this is a profession, um, community interpreting. I had never heard the term before I took the program, the community interpreter. So it opened my eyes to how community interpreting fit into the overall field of interpreting, how it's similar, how it's different. And then what are our guidelines? So what is our code of ethics? Um, in our training programs, uh, we use the National Code of Ethics developed by the National Council for Interpreting in Healthcare. Um, because community interpreting, as of now, we don't have a code of ethics, right? So we're still a profession that is growing, that is developing. But because of that, we, we have to, um, I guess, standardize certain things. And that's what the program does. Mm -hmm. It says, okay, we, as community interpreters, we don't have a national code of ethics, so we will use a medical interpreting code of ethics, which is highly recognized. So that is what we follow, and it gives us guidelines. It gives us reasons why we're doing what we're doing, why we're not being cuddly and super friendly, even though we want to be. Yep, yep. <laughs> but it gives us a reason why we have to step back and say, I am so sorry, I can't fill out this form. Or, you know, I'm so sorry, doctor, I have to leave the room when you leave the room. Uh -huh. um, and it gives us that foundation and that strength um, with the program itself, we will we'll often have a mix of freelancers, um, people who pay their own way, who are thinking or who are already working as an interpreter but need some formal training. And then we also have associations, organizations, government agencies, um, school systems, right, who will send us their bilingual staff. And they have been, quote unquote, translating for a while, but they haven't had the training. So they come to us, they get trained, and they turn around. And it's fascinating because then they start to get pushback, right? Because they say to their, their supervisor or to a fellow colleague, I'm so sorry, but my code of ethics says, you know, I can't do this. And we'll, we teach them, you know, softer ways how to say that, but we give them the reasons why. So people begin to see them, oh my God, this is actually a profession. So mm -hmm. you're actually mm -hmm. doing this not to make my life more difficult, but to provide better service, right? Yes. To our parents, our students, there is a reason why we're doing what we're doing. Um, right. For example, right, a lot of interpreters, and I'll, I'll take that back actually, not a lot of interpreters, but we've heard stories of untrained interpreters who, when they are interpreting for a parent, for example, the parent will go, will say two to three sentences or even, you know, a paragraph, they'll, they'll say something. The interpreter will go back to the teacher and say, yes, she said yes. And the teacher's like, well, what else? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was going on for like three minutes there. What else did she say? Oh, no, no, it's fine. It's fine. She knows what so the interpreter knows she needs to interpret everything yeah and you're in maybe you're in a time crunch it's a quick meeting mm -hmm. and so you want to just kind of be okay we, this is the gist of what was said and we can move on mm -hmm. i think that's again like what we talked about earlier just that kind of human instinct to say to like let's just get this done and get the gist of it so that we can kind of move on to the next important thing that we have <laughs> in our busy days as educators or as parents even as students 
Yeah, and this happens. This happened a lot when I was interpreting in IEP meetings. Um, I would I would come in, and something we teach, which has been an incredibly useful tool for interpreting, is we teach the interpreters when they come into a meeting. Especially there are a lot of people, but for every meeting you go into, you do an interpreter introduction in both languages. So I will turn to the parents. Hi, my name is Michelle. I will be the interpreter for today. Everything that is said will be interpreted. Everything that is said will be kept confidential. Please pause and speak slowly so that I may interpret everything. And I say the same thing to the service providers, right? The teachers, staff members. Mm -hmm. I say this to both parties in both languages. What happens in IEP meetings, what I saw quite often, is that you have, again, the half dozen um, school staff, administrators, teachers, um, counselors on one side of the table. Because of that time crunch, right, which is a very real thing in schools, I'll be interpreting between the parent, parents even, and one of the school staff. The school staff start talking amongst themselves. If that mother, right, if she or father, if they spoke English, if they could understand fully what was going on, if they were a native English speaker, let's say, would those school staff be speaking amongst themselves? Right. So the trained interpreter says at the beginning of the encounter, everything that is said will be interpreted. Right. And I can't tell you the number of times I have gone into simultaneous mode, right? Where you interpret with just a small time lag um, and you're trying to keep up with the people who are, who are talking. And what I'll often do is I'll, I will interpret and I'll point at who I'm interpreting for, especially, you know, when you have so many people in the room and the school staff will look at me and they'll stop talking. <laughs> yeah. And they've never seen an interpreter do that before because it was an untrained interpreter who was just trying to do what she or he could, right? But sure. With a trained interpreter, you're there to interpret everyone, no matter what's said, as if the parent, right, were able to understand everything in English. That's the goal, again, right? You're serving as that conduit, as that communication conduit between all the, or among all the parties. So these are some of the fundamental things that you learn in training, but which are not common sense. Exactly. And again, like that's a great way to put it. And I think that those examples really shine a light on what um, interpret, interpreting services should look like as opposed to kind of what we think um, mm -hmm. or what many think they are. Mm -hmm. So um, that's great. So I, I'm curious, what, one of the, as we kind of begin to wrap up here, mm -hmm. one of the things that we ask um, all of our guests, I want to, in a second, I want to ask you more about your organization, how people can find more about that. But first, we always like to ask um, if people have sort of a book or other resource that has affected them personally or professionally. Um, do you have a recommendation for, for people either on this topic or something that has been um, important to you? Sure. Yeah. And, and it's actually, you'll be interested. It's not something about interpreting per se, but it's definitely helped me as an interpreter, me as a professional, but also in my personal life too. Great. So I, yeah, I always recommend the classic, right? How to win friends and influence people. And I, do you know what's amazing is that <laughs> I literally, that book is, I just got it. And I can't believe it has taken me this long. <laughs> but it's funny because my, my uh, just, I, have, I have to tell you this, it's a quick side note, but yeah. um, my 14-year-old my saw the title of the book and she's like, are you okay? Are you having problems? And I'm like, well, well, the title is a little deceiving, right? But anyway, no. I'll let you talk about yeah. why it's so important. No, I'm excited to read it. I am so excited that you were going to read it. I only read it recently too. And I kicked myself. I said, Michelle, why has it taken you so long to read this book? And the title puts a lot of people off, right? You're, you know, <laughs> your child saying, dad, are you okay? Or other people saying, you know, everything all right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's and just... yet, yeah, it's, it's just, it's one of those books that I think everyone should read. Um, you know, I had us get a copy here for the office. I bought it for friends. Um, fundamentally, I think it's about, it's a book about how to treat our fellow human beings with respect 
and how to seek mutually beneficial outcomes, quite honestly. So how do we do that on a professional level, on a personal level? Um, and then some people think, oh, you know, because Carnegie, was, he was a salesman. It's all about making the sale. Well, it's really about the long-term view, I think, right? How do you build and foster stronger, mutually beneficial relationships with fellow human beings? Great. Well, that's a great recommendation, um, I think, for that's a right. <laughs> And I will, I will reach out know. to you. I will let you know. I have a feeling Indeed. I'll read it pretty quickly. Um, yeah. So last question, uh, an important one. Yeah. Uh, how can people find out more about your organization? Sure, yeah. So um, you can find us several ways. Um, so the, the organization itself is called Cross-Culture Communications. Um, our main website is www.cultureandlanguage.net. So that's culture and language.net. Our sister website is www.thecommunityinterpreter.com. You can give us a call as well. Our phone number is 410-312-5599. Or free, you know, feel free to reach out to me directly. My email is mgallagher at cultureandlanguage.net. Um, you'll see on our website, we offer a number of complimentary resources, including back issues of our newsletter, Intersect, um, our YouTube series, uh, Interpretips, which is a YouTube series in which interpreters from across the country send us questions. We answer them in video format. Um, and we also have other uh, resources like glossaries. I'm glad you mentioned those resources. They are great. And yeah. that's something I use to kind of prep for this interview and something that I've actually recommended to others um, oh, as well. And we will post all of those resources um, on our website at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community so folks can find um, all of that information. And with that, Michelle, it has been um, a pleasure talking with you about this important issue. I'm really glad and we were able to make this connection. And I hope that, uh, that people listening uh, are walking away with sort of a new perspective of what um, community interpreting is. I hope so. And thank you so much for having me. Um, it was a pleasure, Steve, you know, making that connection through our mutual acquaintance and a pleasure doing this podcast with you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations. If you liked our show, please be sure to join the ELL community at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community, where you'll find all the episodes of Highest Aspirations and other resources to help educators maximize the impact on their English language learners. Also, let us know how we're doing by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts.